1: Habitat
0: Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now your host,
2: Jared Van Hees. Welcome back, everybody, to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Now we are continuing on our hinge cutting discussion with Dr. Jim Browker from Extreme Deer Habitat, and this is this. Part two of the two-part hinge cutting podcast. We also talked about hinge cutting 101 and all that awesome stuff back in Habitat Podcast 34 with Jim when we had him on a couple years back. So be sure to check that out. Check out the podcast before this for the beginning of this conversation where we covered the history of hinge cutting and began our discussion on common myths and misconceptions from hinge cutting or what people are are hearing and saying about hinge cutting out there in the habitat world that simply isn't true. So we want to get two sides to every story. We heard the forester side of the story. Now we want the habitat consultant side of the story. And we're going to let you guys decide where you fall on the spectrum. Like I said before, I think hinge cutting is a tool in my toolbox. I don't use it for everything, but I do use it and I think it's a great tool. So guys, we're just trying to spread some information here and, you know, fill you guys in and keep you guys up to date on the knowledge out there and just, you know, make the most informed decisions that you can. Um, I think both the forester and, you know, the hinge cutter are, are on the same page for most things um, more than they disagree, which is important to to recognize. So guys, we have uh, Dr. Jim Brocker back here and we're going to cover the second half of our conversation on myths and misconceptions of hinge cutting. So, Basically, what we're talking about, we have some popular consultants in the habitat world with YouTube channels, and uh, we talk about some of their opinions. We talk about regeneration and poor forestry. We talk about how hinge can increase woody brows and um, overhead cover versus side cover. We talk about, you know invasives coming back in a hinge cut area versus not, and how that's not true in Jim's opinion. So we're getting to some really good stuff here. And I think Jim's just very respectful in the way he goes about this conversation and helps, you know, helps get on our, our page and spread the knowledge here. That's all we're trying to do. So we appreciate you guys coming back. Thank you very much. Uh, this episode here is brought to you by Realtree, United Country, Land Pro, Lake States Realty, and Auction. Now, if you Google that, or Facebook that, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake State's Realty and Auction, you'll be able to find Chad's website and all his current listings. Now, I know Chad is looking for listings to sell right now because nothing is staying on the market at all. So, if you're on the fence about selling your property, wondering if it's the right time, um, I'm hearing that it is and things are moving quickly. You know, if you're like me and, and someday you want a bigger parcel, Maybe now is the time to to sell and get the equity in your property and put that in the bank for the time you know when your right parcel comes around again. You can be ready. So, you know, reach out to Chad. His 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 link is on our website at habitatpodcast.com. dot com. Scroll till you see the Realtree United Country logo. It'll take you right to his website. So check us out at habitatpodcast.com. dot com. You'll be able to find Chad and all of his listings there. Now, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. You, as you guys know, if you've listened to me before, I'm on their team as a, as a real Michigan hunter, self-filming our hunts here, filming our hunts, and they have a new DVD that is launching. Actually, by this time this podcast launches, it will have already been out. So check out Michigan Whitetail Pursuit on Facebook. Grab that new season DVD. There's a bunch of nice bucks killed, no high fence, a bunch of us regular Joes out there killing deer. And it's a great DVD series. Put on by the MWP guys. So check them out at Michigan White Pursuit on Facebook. And they have a great group called The Michigan White Pursuit on Facebook as well, where you can interact with the team. I mean, there's like 15, 16, 17,000 members on that thing. So awesome group there. Speaking of groups, we'd like you to join our new group over on Facebook. It's called Habitat Chat. If you search Facebook, type in Habitat Chat, you will find our group. Now, we are not near the size of MWP, but we're trying, and we're getting up there quickly. We're already at 800-plus contributors, and the topics and content are top-notch over there in the Habitat chat group. I mean, anything from your favorite uh, habitat tool to forestry advice and programs to lower your property taxes um, to... uh, different pond advice on what to do with watering holes and water holes property plans people are throwing up their properties and getting advice on how to set it up i mean we're talking about natives versus invasives miscanthus grass everything is on that site and it's kind of awesome because it fills in the gap between podcast episodes i mean we're trying to launch launch a podcast episode every thursday morning at 5:30 a.m and uh we're doing our best, and in between, every single day, there are mo- there's more Habitat content, Habitat podcast content, on the Habitat chat group. So if you would, go over there and check us out. We'd love to have you join and be a contributor on there. And if not, you can watch and just read and learn, and that's cool, too. And guys, we want to talk about our land plan services next. Now, currently, Brian and I are helping out landowners in Pennsylvania and Minnesota. We have A nice, large property in New Hampshire on board next. And we're talking to some guys up in Canada and also out in Nebraska and then, you know, back to Ohio and Michigan. So we are all over the place right now offering advice, helping landowners get started. You know, we'd hate to see you five years down the road go, shoot, I wish I would have called these guys five years ago because now I am bass backwards on what I'm doing. I wish I wouldn't have done it this way or that way. That's what we're here to help with is just get you on the right path. Um, and if you have already have a plan going, we work with existing plans, and we tell you what we would do if it were our property and how we would set it up, Brian and Jared. Um, so if you guys have any interest at all, go to HabitatPodcast.com, click the Land Plans tab up top, and submit your information. We'll get right back to you. We'll get your help out, and we'll figure this out together and make sure you're on the right path moving forward in your property here in 2021. So, guys, those are Habitat Podcast Land Plans. Check them out at habitatpodcast.com. Thank you so much. Now, I want to thank the listeners once again for tuning in. You guys leave us some great reviews on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify. I'm sending out free decals to anybody who does. So, if you just scroll down in the show notes of this podcast, just scroll down to what you're listening to right now on your phone, there will be a link to leave us good reviews. And if you do, Leave your name at the bottom, and I will find you and send you a free 5-inch Habitat podcast decal. Thank you very much for doing that, guys. I want to thank Packer Max Colts Packers, The Habitat Hook, Killer Food Plots, Hunt Wise, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, and Morse Nursery for their support in the show. Let's get to it. Let's wrap up our conversation here. Another very informative back into this chat here with Dr. Hengecutt, Dr. Jim Brouker from Extreme Deer Habitat.
0: So Jim, continuing on our talk about different myths, give us another example of one that you see all the time that bugs the heck out of you.
3: Well, um, one that comes up all the time and, and I started to tell you a little bit of the history of um, um, the QDMA article in Grant Woods and, and over time people began to believe those guys. And even um, – and, uh, you know, I uh, um, I I don't want to badmouth anybody in any of this. People have their different opinions, and I'm simply disagreeing with some opinions. And really the guy that's carried the gauntlet for Grant Woods and these other guys has been Jeff Sturgis. Now, Jeff Sturgis is a guy who I think is just a superb habitat uh, guy, and he's helped uh, countless landowners – have better properties, but he kind of latched onto this hinge cutting thing and, um, and has produced a mantra of things of, um, he does use hinge cutting, but he sort of carried the, the flag for this uh, that supports the anti hinge cutting movement. And I know he hinge cuts, so I don't understand why he says some of the things he says, but one of the things that's come out of that pathway, um, this history is. Nobody needs to hinge cut. And that is said in a way, you know, um, in an article or something, or it's said online in a post as if anybody ever said you do need to hinge cut. The word need has a very powerful connotation. If you think about how silly would it be to say nobody needs to food plot, nobody needs to – have a box blind. nobody needs to grow switchgrass <laughs> nobody needs to make a trail through the woods you can have good hunting without ever once doing any of those things and millions of people do it on public land every year so no nobody needs to hinge cut but the fact that you say that is a level of bias that is just uncanny uh, un- unbelievable to me um uh, Nobody would ever say you don't need the food plot. What they would do is point out the best ways to do it. And another thing that Jeff says all the time is there are lots of properties that don't need to be hinge cut. Well, I would go further, Jeff, and say 100% of properties don't need to be hinge cut, but any property that has trees on it would probably benefit from hinge cutting. And so I just strongly differ with this. And it's what we call a straw man in science. Uh, Somebody creates an argument that nobody would argue against and nobody ever has argued against and acts as if somebody has been saying that. Has Jim Ward ever told anybody they need the hinge cut? No. He tells them you might benefit from making a hinge cut. Betting area over here, you might hinge cut from making a buck bet on this hillside. You might uh, do this or that. Uh, you might create a barrier here with hinge cutting. But he didn't say they need to hinge cut. If they don't want to cut a tree, he walks into their property and they say, I don't want to cut any trees. He'll work with that. I'll work with it. Jake will work with it. Tony Loprat will work with it. And almost anybody will work with that because, no, nobody needs to hinge cut. But as soon as you say that, you're saying a negative thing about hinge cutting. And you're doing it in a really sly way. Interesting. And so um, do you need the hinge cut? No. Do you need the food plot? No. Do you need the clear cut? No. Do you need to do TSI? No. Would you benefit from doing those things in appropriate ways? Yes, 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 yes. Don't food plot unless you're going to get a soil sample. Don't food plot unless you're going to plant the seeds um, after the Uh, frost for uh, delicate things, or uh, don't plant things that should be planted in mid-August and July. There's a whole bunch of things. Don't plant too much seed. Um, Make sure you use the appropriate amount of fertilizer. All those things are things you would say, but you wouldn't say you're doing too much food planting, like that article I mentioned earlier, or you don't need the food plot. Uh, what they would say is here's the way to do it right. And that's what I try to do when it comes to hinge cutting is I say um, um, uh, that you should um, do it appropriately and for a particular reason. So, for example, if you have a tree stand and you have a problem with deer walking right up underneath it um, and you have trees around you, hinge cut three or four of them, and they won't do that anymore. You can hinge cut in such a way that they will circle around right at 22 yards, if that's your optimal first pin on your bow, and you shoot them. Uh, They don't come right up under your stand, smell you, and run away. So it's a simple thing. If you have trees, there's no such thing as a property that has trees in a situation like that that wouldn't benefit from hinge cutting a few of those trees. It just doesn't make sense to say there are properties that, Don't need hinge cutting. No, but there are properties, if they have trees, they probably could use some somewhere. If you have a um, trail coming out of a sanctuary area towards your stand where the deer, while they're walking down that trail, come right at your stand, and they can start to come out of there and they see you move, hey, make them come out um, 30 or 40 yards off to the right or left. By hinge cutting trees down over that trail and make them use a trail that's going to come out at bow distance rather than coming straight at you. If you have a woodlot that has trees in it and you want tree, deer, deer to bed in that woodlot, hinge cut it. Hinge cut an area. They'll use it the first night. I went through uh, with a um, hinge cutting expert before I knew how to do it. This is back in 2000. Seven, And we made a bunch of uh, bedding areas along a creek bottom, probably about 15 doe family bedding spots. And we raked out all those, um, uh, underneath all those spots. The next day, I went through and did a survey. Nine out of ten of those areas have been inspected by deer, and several of them had had deer bedded in them the first night, the first day, I should say, afterwards. Uh Deer love those kind of spots. So why wouldn't you do it if you have a woods? Are you going to clear cut that area? Well, you're not going to get deer to use it that night if you do. Maybe two or three years from now they'll use it for bedding. But you can get them to bed that night by using hinge cutting. So why wouldn't you do it? Uh No, you don't need to, but why wouldn't you? And so the, then there are a bunch of other uh, reasons that you, you might want to do that.
2: Well, like, like you said, you get the instant side cover or or overhead cover. Where as a clear cut, you have to you have to wait. And I don't mind being patient either. But at the same time, if you hunt Michigan deer, they're on a different level. And having that extra cover right off the bat is advantageous to me. Um, especially in a clear cut, you know they're they're great attracting areas up north. You know I hunt clear cuts when I go up north. So it's like, but after a few years, that gets really thick as well and almost too thick to hunt. So you hunt the edges and whatnot. So it's it's just another tool in the toolbox to use here or there or in certain areas to create bedding. And you don't have to do your whole woods, you know. It's it's just, there are a lot of advantages, which is why I wanted to have you well, have to talk you, about this. You,
3: usually shouldn't do your whole woods you know
2: exactly
3: very important need to have open areas for me to walk through that deer aren't going to be using in daytime people need to understand when when i sit in a stand and i'm going to put out a video here in in a few days of i only got to hunt two days during this archery season because i don't start archery hunting until after the 25th of october and i hunted two days in early november i think the second and the fourth or something like that and then i got covid and i was out of the picture until the 15th of gun season. But I had two days of hunting there. Uh, One of those days, I had um, deer families bedded within uh, 40 to 70 yards of me in four different directions all day. Uh, I was never out of sight of deer all day long, and they're up on their feet about 50% of the time that they're in that bedding spot. So if you create these bedding spots and you get in a place you can observe them, one thing you'll learn is deer do not stay on their bellies all day. They're up browsing three or four times during the day. Uh, Some of the adults might only get up once, but the fawns are up over and over and again. And the bucks are usually there never. I don't think I've ever seen a buck bedded for more than two hours. So I'm able to observe them. Why are they there browsing around on their feet in daylight? Because they feel 100% protected. And the reason they feel protected is because they cover. They don't know I'm 40 feet up above them on a ridge watching them bedded all day long. Uh, so these are the kind of things that I want to accomplish. And um, if you have a wooded area, uh, hinge cutting is by far the easiest way to accomplish it. So you brought up a minute ago side cover. That's what they're after in most cases. Uh, and side cover is a. It brings up another uh, straw man, an argument that um, just, Sturgis has made, and he's had devoted whole video, if I remember right, a few years ago, to the, the observation, side cover is more important than overhead cover. Okay? So what he wants to do with his video is argue that overhead cover isn't necessary. And what he prefaces it with is a complete straw man, side cover is more important than overhead cover, as if anybody ever said it once and nobody ever said that. I certainly never said it. I know Tony LaPratt never said it. I know uh, Jake Ellinger never said it. I know Jim Ward never said it. We all recognize that side cover is far more important than overhead cover. So why would somebody, just like I asked the question, why would somebody make an article in a magazine that says five reasons you might be food plotting too much instead of five reasons you might be um, doing it wrong, Um, This is another one of those things that allows a person to create a whole video that makes an argument that nobody would argue against, that nobody ever said otherwise. Yes, side cover is more important. I'm writing an article right now, and I say it in big capital letters three times. Side cover is more important than overhead cover. Well, the argument then that you want to go on and you're – You're acting as if anybody ever said side cover is more important. Now you can make the argument, not only is side cover more important, but you don't need overhead cover. Well, again, there we are with another straw man, and that word need again. No, nobody needs overhead cover. Nobody needs to create overhead cover for deer. Nobody needs to food pot. Nobody needs to grow switchgrass, all those other things. Nobody needs to do that. You don't say it about all those other things, but you say it about hinge cutting and you say it about overhead cover. Well, I don't need overhead cover, but I sure do want it because I know from countless uh, experiences on my property as well as others that a lot of deer greatly prefer overhead cover. And so I try to create it. Now, Jeff makes a really good argument in his um, comments about this when he says, He doesn't feel comfortable doing it because it's unsafe. Well, it's unsafe for him, maybe, if he doesn't feel comfortable doing it. Nobody should cut. Nobody should even pick up a chainsaw if they don't feel comfortable doing it. But it is not unsafe to cut high to hinge cut if you know what you're doing and you do it properly. Uh, People make the argument um, that it's unsafe, and they say, Well, OSHA doesn't allow people to cut over their heads. Well, that's absolutely not true. Uh, It is true of people on the ground. So what is OSHA's role in safety? OSHA's role is to not tell you to not do something safe. If OSHA wanted to tell you not to do something safe, they wouldn't allow people to run a chainsaw in a business to start with. It's unsafe. right. By definition, it's dangerous. What they do is they tell people, uh, if you're conventionally cutting a tree, you're a, um, a logger, or you're a um, person that works on the roadside for the county commissioner, whatever. You should never cut over your head. But then they turn around. And they have a different area. They actually. Um, tell those people not to stand on a platform. Never stand on a platform if you're cutting trees that way. But if you're a uh, arborist, you can dangle from ropes 75 feet up in a tree and cut over your head with a chainsaw that's hanging from a cord that you're going to drop. Uh, so uh, the idea that because OSHA doesn't cover hinge cutting means that you it, it's uh, less safe than dangling 75 feet up in a tree from ropes with a uh, saw in your hands? No, it's safer to hinge cut over your head than it is to climb that tree. The difference is there's an industry that requires tree climbers. Every county in the country and every uh, municipality in the country has people who are hired to climb up in trees and trim them for power lines and and various things to cut arborists, to cut people, uh, trees out of people's yards. So that isn't a dangerous thing they're doing. OSHA uh, regulates them because tens of thousands of people are doing that in a business or for a government. Nobody's doing that in hinge cutting, so OSHA doesn't cover it. That doesn't mean if, hinge cutting became an industry as big as logging or uh, tree trimming, then OSHA would cover it, and they would tell you how to do it safely. Uh, So the fact that OSHA doesn't cover it doesn't mean anything. It just means it's not a big business for anybody. But thousands and thousands of landowners are doing it, and they're safely cutting over their heads. And there are means that you can use to find out how to safely do it, And probably the best means, and I'm not doing this in a self-congratulatory way, I'm the only guy that's written a book on hinge cutting. I have a book that details to you how you can be safe hinge cutting. And actually, for example, when it comes to barber chairs, which is where you partially cut through a tree and the strain on the tree causes it to kick back, if you're cutting higher, you're actually safer from a barber chair because it's happening above your head. It's not going to hit you in the face. So... Uh, Jeff's arguments are uh wrong both from a safety standpoint and from an overhead cover standpoint and um I'm just saying he's wrong i'm not saying uh he's a bad guy or I don't like him or whatever. I just think he's taking a stance that discourages people from doing something that really improve their deer habitat. I have dozens of pictures in my book and hundreds of pictures on my computer of overhead cover that has attracted deer to to lie underneath it, and I've observed countless um, natural uh, beds where blowdowns and stuff are used by deer for overhead cover. Well, why do they do that? Well, I'm going to delve into my science. I've got a lot of experience in um, um, genetics and uh, developmental biology and uh, uh, various um, biological endeavors. And... I know a bit about evolution and natural selection. Um, deer have been hunted in Michigan, just Michigan alone. Uh, over 300,000 hunters go out every year and perch in trees and shoot down at deer, and we kill probably 30 or 40 percent of the deer in the herd every year. We are selecting for deer to survive who are wary about overhead cover.
1: That and um
3: uh, by the way, we select for lots of things in deer because we we put so much pressure on them. One thing we don't select for is antlers because you can't select for antlers because uh it takes them four or five years to get um uh to express their genetic capabilities because of other reasons like nutrition and uh, month of birth and things like that. But you can control so for example, and I'm just going to delve into genetics here a little bit because it's really important to the argument that I'm going to make next. Um, if, if two fawns are born in the same area, and one of them is outgoing and rambunctious and um, runs around all day long playing and cavorting and uh, exploring, and the other one is shy and retiring and quiet and afraid, and hides in the bushes all day long. Which one of those do you think is going to survive to be a four-and-a-half-year-old buck in Michigan? Right. It's not the rambunctious one. He gets killed the first year. So we have selected for many, many generations of deer. A generation of deer is only two or three, four years. Uh, countless generations of deer we've been selecting for shy deer. Bucks don't get smart as they age. They don't get very much smarter. They were born either very cautious and very quiet, or they were born very rambunctious. And that's those rambunctious ones that get killed off, and that's why it's hard to kill older bucks. So this selection process happens. Now, since the 70s, we've been hunting deer with bows and arrows from trees in Michigan, and that selection process is going on. So when, um, you know, I've heard... Um, People say that deer born looking up and walking backwards in Michigan. Uh, that's true. And um, they really are different than deer in other states that have not been hunted from above because many, many generations of selection have occurred. So you can't select for antlers, but you can select for shyness and uh, quietness, and, um, and that's what will grow into an older buck. And you can select for deer... Um, Wanting overhead cover. Well, why why do they want overhead cover? They have been evolving for millions of years with predators, not only humans in recent decades, but predators attacking them from above. Saber-toothed tigers stood on ledges or up in trees and jumped down on the deer. Uh, Cougars still do it today. They uh, perch in tree branches or on a ledge and they jump down on deer. Deer are prey animals. And if they can get cover, they want the side cover. They absolutely need it. But they also, uh, many of those that are um, genetically programmed, want overhead cover as well. And when we create overhead cover, we get deer to bed there. And if you have one uh, senior family member of a doe family, let's say the grandma, who Loves overhead cover. All the rest of the deer are going to come where she goes, which is going to be the overhead cover. It only takes one out of a group of seven deer uh, to want overhead cover to have the whole group be there. So overhead cover works, and it works really well, and it's safe to do if you know what you're doing. So I just, um, uh, 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 while I agree when somebody says nobody needs to hinge cut and nobody needs overhead cover, and I agree that side cover is more important, I think a a a, um, landowner is really remiss when they're out hinge cutting their property if they're not cutting overhead cover for the deer because they will use it.
2: Right, and I've I've seen, um, I'm not sure if it was Jeff or or someone who's tied over young trees instead of hinge cutting them above your head, and that's something you could even do if you're not comfortable putting a chainsaw that high in the air and, and you're worried about that instead of Instead of not liking that technique, you could, you know, tie a piece of paracord onto a They're smaller lacking. tree and bend it over, right? Right. Just another yeah, to and I, t-
3: I tie a lot of saplings down. I'm far more likely to tie a sapling down than I am to cut it. And, uh, and by the way, when we're creating these uh, bedding areas, especially the areas of more extensive hinge cutting, we're taking out the canopy and all the big trees are being felled conventionally. For the most burst. part. Maybe rarely you right? find one that will absolutely first. The big trees go down first. You take out the uh, overhead cover, the the um, canopy of the woods, because the trees that you're going to hinge cut actually require that. When those big trees come down, uh, you can now bring the smaller trees down on them and the big treetops cushion their fall, and you can create these dome-shaped bedding areas that we would like to take. And I strongly encourage people... <laughs> To first learn how to use the chainsaw properly and to understand how to do it safely, don't just go out there and wildly try it. But once you're you're comfortable doing hinge cutting, to create that overhead cover and create those dome-shaped areas there. But take the big trees down first. Don't cut anything over. For most landowners, I would say six inches would be the limit. Uh, If you don't feel comfortable with that, you can take a handsaw, and you get a really good handsaw, like a Silky Zubat. The Silky Company, S-I-L-K-Y, uses Japanese steel. It's superb. Uh, you can cut through a six-inch tree in no time flat, and you can create these areas without ever touching a chainsaw. And I probably cut more trees with a handsaw than I do with a chainsaw.
2: Do you and I really probably like cut more
3: I probably cut more trees. In fact, I'm sure I do cut more trees conventionally with a face cut than in a back cut, the way OSHA teaches it for um, loggers, uh, than I do hinge cutting. The hinge cutting is a supplemental thing when you're creating an area that allows you to create great hit side cover and great overhead cover. So typically what we do when we're creating the overhead cover, we're creating that about shoulder to head height so that a buck can stand up underneath it and start running. A deer is not going to use an area that they cannot stand up completely upright and then go into a full crouch and run from a predator and they need to have escape zones from that. Then on the sides as we taper away in an open wooded area we're going to cut lots of trees down and make sure that we have side cover because side cover is essential. Overhead cover is not essential. It's just highly desirable. Side cover is essential. So I'm back to that complete myth um, and straw man argument that side cover is more important than overhead cover. Of course it is. Nobody ever said otherwise.
2: Yeah, I know. I'd, I'd rather have side cover than than no cover. That's usually my first go-to. And then the overhead, that, that makes sense, and I like how you said that, yeah. you know, you're, you're one of the guys who I know who is such a huge proponent of hinge cutting, but even you say, you're traditionally selling the large trees first, and, and you do that even more often than hinge cutting, I don't think, that's where I think the bias is coming in from other people who are, who are not explaining in detail enough that this is just a tool in your toolbox, right, it's not. Your, exactly. Your lifestyle. It's not tattooed on your arm and that's all you do. I mean it's just part of one of your processes out in the woods.
3: Yep. Any any um large or marginal tree that I cut is gonna be uh, conventionally cut with a face cut. That's the safest way to do it. So now I'm I do t- hinge cut hard trees occasionally, but I I really know what I'm doing, so I'm right. I'm choosing trees that I know I can cut safely, and I have a good escape route.
2: Yeah, I've seen some of your videos. You've you've successfully hinged some some big trees, and and um, yeah, I've I've hinged a couple larger ones myself with the use of wedges and habitat hook, et cetera, to where it's not not so dangerous. But I I have a quick question for you. You mentioned a scenario earlier where you're sitting in your stand and you have deer bedded in four different directions um yeah in in these areas if you're at the center spoke of a clock the clock's laying on its side can you explain maybe in the time references on the clock which areas are thick hinge cut or or traditional cut which are wide open I guess I kind of want to paint a picture of how how much cutting you're doing in an area like yeah. that where you have deer bedded all around you
3: the area that I was talking about there is has been logged um two years ago uh and that's where most of the cover has come from is just the logging i haven't uh hinge cut extensively uh I'm on a plateau um that is in oxbow of a creek. The creek is about um typically in a low period like this it's ten or fifteen feet wide in most places and um It makes an oxbow, and uh, sloping up in all directions from that oxbow is a, I call it the mesa. It's a plateau about 20 feet above the creek bottom. And on top, that was a forested area where you could see for 200 yards when I bought the property uh, about four years ago. And now um, the entire top of it has been logged and hinge cut and is nothing but a feeding area. Just one uh, three or four acre feeding area. Now I'm out on the point of the mesa. So uh, deer can be, bet- De- deer do not typically bed up in the food pots, although sometimes during the daytime a doe family will lay down there for a while. Um, uh, but uh, usually just the the junior members of the family might lay down for a few minutes, but typically, down on that creek bottom, I can see uh about i'm not on a point so I can see all around me uh the creek bottom and I am about um thirty five feet above it in a box line that's sealed, and that box line has vents in the bottom and uh, a fifteen foot um stovepipe coming up so all of my scent is being expelled about 40 to 45 feet above any of those bedded deer so they can be laying in all directions except in the food plot area which is just a kind of a v going out from me so I can hunt almost any wind uh, except one that's blowing across the top of the mesa there and so those deer can bed down in all directions so Uh, they're laying down on that creek bottom, which is very thick uh, because of the timber, but also because of some moderate amount of hinge cutting that I've done down there. Now, this year, um, a lot of that area is going to get extensively hinge cut. It's just been on my list and hasn't been absolutely needed because it gets so heavily used anyway, but I can improve it.
2: Sure. And is that something you can hunt in an evening as well and not worry about thermals because of your box blind stovepipe setup? Or,
3: uh, Yeah, it's up above everything down there. Um, there's no chance they're going to smell me. It's completely bulletproof until occasionally when they climb the hill um, right up uh, near me, uh, they will pick something up but that's usually residual from me walking in. Right. I only hunt this all day long. I never would consider walking in and out because I know that in addition to the bedded uh, bucks and does that I can see at any given moment, there's probably a dozen other uh, families and bucks that would see me if I tried to exit it. I'm literally hunting uh, where I can see all day betting every day that I'm out there. And in, observe the behavior the that's their bed. I right. can see down into it just as clearly as can be although some areas are you know where the deer are bedded i don't know that they're there because and sometimes i'll be uh, i'll i'll and i'm very alert all day long usually but i'll look away from an area and i'll look back and see a buck bedded down there and i go where in the hell did he come from but it's so thick that they can wander around in there and unless you catch them moving you won't see them
2: well, that's why they're there too. So, I I like what you're yeah. what you're doing and and I I understand that. I think um sounds like a great spot. Love to see that someday. That's that's pretty neat. Now, are there any other maybe mis- misconceptions or or myths on this that we wanted to cover before we wrap?
1: Yeah,
3: I would uh, add um, another need, uh, a thing that they say, and you see all the time, you don't need to hinge cut because conventional cutting works just as well. And then there's the argument like Grant Woods made that I quoted earlier. um, Regeneration in a hinge cut area is not as good as in a clear cut area. That's just complete nonsense, uh, that latter. And um, uh, regeneration is fantastic in a hinge cut area. And um, one of the things that we really teach is, Uh, that um, keep the trees alive because the root system that's feeding a stump or a hinge cut tree in an area that you've cut is the richest um, food source that a deer is going to find in a wooded area. In other words, if you have a root system that's 30 feet or 40 feet wide that's feeding a stump or a stem of a hinge cut tree, the leaves that are produced there are three or four times bigger than the leaves that are coming from the, um, ground sprouts that are coming up. Ground sprouts are coming up too, but very rich. Um, uh, so it's better than uh, a clear cut area in a lot of ways, although clear cut areas grow from the stump too. But uh, people have named these things mineral stumps. Uh, we've been using them for years. Because finally, I think it was MSU Labs, uh, Mississippi State went in and measured, somebody went in and measured um, the nutrients in stump sprout leaves on trees, and they're far higher than the ground sprouts. And so you really want that. And so regeneration from a hinge cut area is actually better and thicker in a lot of ways. And it's instantly there. The day you hinge cut it, you have cover that's good enough for deer to bed in. So, going back to the, you don't need to hinge cut because conventional cutting works just as well. It's just not true. If you're um, conventionally cutting and cutting, um, using a face cut and cutting trees down, and especially if you're leaving them lay, you're leaving a mess that deer have to um, worry about um, uh, escape routes and stuff through. Uh, And the trunks are laying down in the ground so they don't create any cover. Uh, When you hinge cut trees, uh, you are, um, leaving them up on the stumps so you create horizontal cover two, three, four, five, six feet off the ground. And, uh, you can't do that if you're conventionally cutting. If you clear cut, you're removing all the trees and it takes a long time for that ground regeneration to occur. When you hinge cut, you're getting that instant cover. Like I said, we've had deer use beds that we've made the day after we made them and uh, many times. And, um, Uh, that that's instant and so you not only get the instant cover but you get the regeneration from it a lot of people think and i've heard experts quote unquote in articles and online say that when you hinge cut you're just bringing the canopy down from the top to the ground no you are not no you are not um when you cut three quarters of the way through a tree or cut a tree completely down conventionally as we do the big trees in an area that we're going to hinge cut. You removing the canopy of the big trees that you cut completely through and bringing it down to the ground where it'll sprout out of the stumps. And you're removing 75% of the canopy from the hinge cut trees because you've reduced their uh, nutritional support by about 75%. So a lot more light is hitting the ground. So you're getting... Mm. Light to the trees, to the tree stumps, to the living, um, trunk of the tree, which will, will sprout, and you're getting light to the ground. And other advantages to it are you're leaving shade there, uh, which keeps moisture in the ground. The trees that die, uh, leaving them there, they, um, even the conventionally tree, cut trees that are laying on the ground are, um, creating moisture, they're dying, and they're creating habitat for um, grubs and bugs and insects that bring birds, and the birds poop out seeds, and you get regeneration of seeds that came from miles away. Um, when uh, you know, people often say it's not good forest stewardry to just cut these trees down and leave them sideways on the ground. Well, I I strongly disagree with that. Um, the bad forest steward stewardry. Is when you cut a tree down and you skid the log out and sell it and trade it for uh, green pieces of paper for money, uh, because you're removing nutrients from that forest when you remove that. Uh, there used to be a huge industry in the United States of making potash from tree tr- cut trees. Those uh, trunk, those um, logs that you're hauling out are full of potash, which is Uh, Absolutely needed fertilizer for the soil. So you're removing nutrients from the woods. When you let a tree rot in the woods, you're creating, uh, within a few years' time, you're leaching the nutrients into the ground. The grubs and bugs have grown in there and the um, animals, the birds and squirrels and everything, poop seeds, and then those seeds grow so you have um, much more um, florid and diversified environment than you had in the forest floor before, that attracts in the deer and the rabbits and the other wildlife. It's a wonderful stewardry approach to let light down to that forest floor and to leave the fertilizer that's in those logs and the homes for billions of bacteria and bugs and grubs and things to create an ecology there that can't exist if you're skinning out those logs. So this is a wonderful thing that you're doing, and um, you're letting light lots of light to the ground. Don't believe anybody that tells you that you don't get good regeneration in a hinge-cut area. You get better regeneration than you'll get in any other means of doing it because you're getting a combination of the stump and um, the sideways trees regenerating, and you're getting ground regeneration.
2: And the top is 75% less Dense, if you will, and it lets more sunlight through that as well.
3: Correct. That entire top is not going to survive with when you've cut off two-thirds of the nutrition.
2: Right. Yeah, it'd be like, it'd be like girdling a tree and leaving it standing. You're, the sunlight can get through that, right, and get to the pool yeah. floor. When
3: I – right. When I take into that, um, let's say 50% of your trees survive hinge cutting, really um, – you have about one-eighth of the canopy remaining um, that was in the upright trees. And so you get massive amounts of sunlight coming in. You can feel it on your face when you're out hinge cutting on a summer day and you cut the big trees down and all of a sudden you're you're getting too hot because you're standing in sunlight. that's hitting the ground. It's hitting the hinge cut trees. It's creating life. Uh, it's a wonderful thing.
2: And out of all and, of this regeneration, what are you seeing – for native versus invasive regen.
3: Well, um, that's another argument I saw just recently. A forester was uh, online with a post saying that hinge cutting would cause um, invasive species to uh, increase. I don't see how if there's a seed bank with invasive species in it and you let light into it, whether it's from a tree stand improvement, whether it's from a massive logging operation, whether it's from um, clear cutting, or whether it's from hinge cutting, you let light down, uh, those seeds are going to grow. And so there's nothing special about hinge cutting that's going to encourage um, non-native. That's the job of the uh, forestry steward to get rid of those non-native species by whatever means he lets the light in. So that's just a nonsense argument in my opinion uh there's n- if you clear cut an area and right next to it you hinge cut it uh you're not going to have more um, invasive species in the hinge cut area. that just doesn't make sense to me right both Both areas are going to get the invasives if they're there, and you have to deal with it um and there are means to deal with it if you uh for the most part, there are some exceptions um but for the most part, if you have an invasive uh, species in your woods, it's your fault. It's not the species' fault, and it's not the method by which you let the light in. It's that you didn't deal with it. Uh, just like if I um, see a row of lawns in a neighborhood, and most of those lawns are nice and green, and one is full of dandelions, I don't blame the dandelion um, or the lawnmower. I blame the landowner. Uh, He created that invasive species there because it's there in the seed bank. It's in the air. It's in the birds. It's going to get spread no matter what. Uh, You have to deal with it. So that's up to the landowner, not the method by which he um, encouraged sunlight to the forest floor. I would just add one more thing that um, I would encourage this time of year all landowners to do, and that's to go in, find out, if, if, especially if deer are yarding on your property, Find out where they're at. Go in there and hinge cut some trees for them. Uh, I have a video on my YouTube site where a few years ago I, I went in. I found about 150 year deer yarding on my property. They were destroying um, the habitat there. They were eating uh, in a horsetail um, bog. Uh, they um, had eaten the horsetail down to the ground. The snow was about um, two and a half, three feet, and they had created lanes in it. and from a hillside uh area where they were bedding and then they were coming down and eating and they were destroying spruce trees they were destroying all kinds of dogwood trees um and so I went up on the hillside and I cut um you know 30 or 40 um mainly cherry trees down and um it set a record for me because I set up a camera and the first deer came in to start browsing on those hinge-cut tops within five minutes of me leaving. My wow. scent was all over the place. It didn't matter. They stood back there, and they listened to that chainsaw. And, man, they got in there, and, um, the, and I drove over to a friend's house where I could see that hillside from about a half a mile away. And I got out the binoculars, and I could probably see eight or ten brown bodies on the hillside just in the time it took me ten minutes or so to, to drive over to my friend's house. So, um, what deer need in northern states in the winter, in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, New York, Pennsylvania, is woody browse. Um, A lot of landowners make a huge mistake of planting all this winter food for the deer. They attract the deer into their property, uh, and then their browse gets destroyed and hammered by the deer. Much better uh, way to manage a small property is to... Uh, improve the browse for the deer. That's what they need. It needs to be more than 50% of their diet. And if I walk through woodlots all over Michigan, whether it's on state lands in the north where they no longer have good forestry practices and all this second growth that's occurred after the logging industry left has um, um, destroyed deer habitat up there, or whether I'm down here in woodlots in uh, southern Michigan, Uh, where landowners have let too many trees grow and they think letting trees grow is the way to grow timber, and it isn't. You have to to grow timber, you have to cut trees, and so these woodlots are uh, denuded. You need to go in there and let light in and get um, two things out of it. If you do timber stand improvements on those woodlots, the timber will grow much faster than it will if you let all these stems grow up and compete with each other. And the other thing it'll do is provide the woody browse that that deer need in winter but the single biggest mistake i think landowners make generally in managing their property is that they think growing food is what they need to do in northern states like michigan and that is not the case in the winter you'd be much better off creating the browse for them let them go uh, to their native uh, feeding areas so if you're on the up and you're creating food plots on your property you may be hurting the deer because you're drawing them over to open areas and instead of going to their yarding areas in a cedar swamp or something like that, they're hanging out by your field and you're going to have a lot more starvation and uh, loss of fawns uh, doing that. Um, And down here, um, if you have, let's say, a 40-acre property in farm country, don't encourage those deer to be on your property in the winter. Let them go to um, areas... Um, maybe um, adjacent to hay fields and farm fields and things like that, where there's residual crops from bean harvest and things like that. Don't attract them to your small property with food plots and stuff and then have them destroy your browse. Or if you find, like I did in that example, that they're already there and they're settled in and yarding for the winter, feed them, cut trees down. That's what they need.
2: Great advice. Yeah, I know that they're on the woody browse right now, so that's that's a great advice. Yep. I, and we've seen some of our our friends in the habitat chat group going in there and cutting down, you know, some some strips of of younger trees or just any sort of woody browse to get on the get on the ground, and and the deer attack that very quickly these days with these temperatures.
3: Well, let me just end by saying, um, Grant Woods, Jeff Sturgis, I think both of you are. Um, great influences and and have done great things in the deer industry. There's nothing personal about what I said. I used you guys as examples of, I think, things that I just simply um, technically uh, disagree with and it's not meant to be a personal attack at all, and I just want to make that clear.
0: Yeah, but, I appreciate you clearing that up and, and making that very clear to everybody. I think you did a good job of that while you were giving the examples too, which I appreciate about you. And uh, I think we can all benefit from trying to learn from everybody. I mean, not everybody has all the exact right answers for the exact right scenario. So I think it's important, especially with uh, all of our listeners out there, that have been participating with the chat group and, and uh, sending us questions and things just, just keep an open mind and, and try to be respectful of everybody's opinion and, and go from there. Great.
3: Uh, if, great talking to you guys. Uh, if you don't have any more questions, if you do, I'm still here.
2: No, Jim, I just uh, – the only other question I had was, um, you know, we want to reiterate to to our listeners that if you're going to get out there and try this to study some, some traditional felling techniques and some chainsaw safety, um, do you have any recommendations <laughs> – I know your book has a few chapters on it, which we talked about. Are there any other recommendations that, that you could I say do I do. There's my book, there.
3: especially for hinge cutters. It's the only book I know of on hinge cutting. Uh, it's called Extreme Deer Habitat. It's available on my website at extremedeerhabitat.com. Uh, there is a, a book that is known as the Tree Feller's Bible. It's called To Fell a Tree by Jeff Jepson. I recommend that anybody that's going to put their hands on a chainsaw and try to cut down a tree, read Jeff Jepson's book and do it the way he says. I also strongly recommend the OSHA site, which teaches how to conventionally fell a tree. Guys one of the uh, who are out there cutting, do not ever, ever cut a tree on a downward slant with your back cut. It makes an unstable tree. Jeff, We'll teach you that in this book. OSHA will teach you that. Uh, don't ever do that. You're making a unstable tree that's going to break and fall over backwards on you. And the reason people do that downward cut is to try to make the tree fall forward. It does the opposite. What it causes is the hinge to break. The tree slides forward and falls backwards. So uh, read, read the, the OSHA site. Read that book. Read my book. And whatever you do, don't go out there and just start cutting trees down with a chainsaw and and especially don't just start hinge cutting trees. Find somebody that knows how to do it. There's a big network here in Michigan uh, at sites like um, Michigan Quality Deer Habitat or Let's Talk Deer Habitat, which is a nationwide site. Uh, I like the site the Northeast uh, Habitat Group has. I can't exactly remember the name of it. There's all kinds of resources out there, but I don't recommend just reading it. I recommend finding somebody uh, uh, online, go to Facebook, find somebody in your neighborhood that knows how to do it, and have them come on over and teach you how to do it because you can hurt yourself and i just saw recently saw and i think i offended a guy online um, i told him he should put the chainsaw down and walk away from it and uh i i shouldn't have been so uh tough on him but it is like watching somebody reach for a uh, um exposed electric uh wire when i see some of the uh, chainsaw work that people are doing online it's very dangerous and make sure that you know what you're doing before you do it, and no men were not born knowing how to run a chainsaw. (laughs) Uh, I thought I was. Um, I learned a lot when I was a a teenager and in my early 20s from hanging around. I worked at hardwood lumber companies, and uh, I learned from the loggers how to properly cut trees, and everybody needs to learn how to do that. Um, uh, It's not the old deal of uh, hold my beer while I start this thing up. Uh, right. we need to take safety measures and know how to do it before we cut trees.
2: Well, Jim, I think that was an excellent place to to hit the end button on this. Thank you so much. It was extremely I, informative. So thank you, and um, we'll be in touch soon. Thank you
3: for having me on. I want to get the safety message and the hinge cutting message out to as many people as possible. Thank you for the exposure. Of course, Jim. Of course, Talk Jim. to you soon.
2: Mm-hmm. Take care. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, habitatpodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan. Tab. check out our HP land plans there we also have hats t-shirts and decals up at habitatpodcast.com of course all of our podcast episodes and then we have a new Habitat podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts um, you know more of a blog post from us every now and then we'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook and YouTube found the Habitat podcast and please subscribe that really helps us and thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better Habitat managers.